Good morning, everyone. Let me make sure I get our, see if I can figure out PowerPoint. We're on a good start. Uh, so uh, Dr. Bennett alluded to something. Um, Brendan and Ilana and I have had the privilege, thanks to her and the support of her division, in participating in some quality improvement training out of Cincinnati Children's this past year. So what we're gonna do over the course of the next hour is tell you guys a little bit about the projects that we've completed through this course. Um, but what we really, really hope the takeaway here is, is about some of the methodology, because what we really want is for all of you guys to start doing this in your own areas or continue doing it in your own areas if you haven't already. Uh, this is important for a few reasons. One, you sort of have to. So for maintenance of certification, you can't get around doing quality improvement anymore. But what I hope that we will also convince you is that this is actually useful. So I'm going to start with our objectives here. Um, we tried to keep them pretty basic. The first is that we want you to be able to define a SMART aim, understand what it is and how to use it in your own projects. The second is that we want you to understand the role of PDSA cycles in the quality improvement uh, process. And then again, lastly, what I've already alluded to is that we really, really want you to start thinking about how you can be using these basic quality improvement principles in your own healthcare setting. So just give, wanted to start by then giving you a little bit of background here about the science of improvement. It's a well-established field of science. It is pretty different from traditional research methodology. So for those of us who had some training in that sphere, it is a little bit of a shift uh, in understanding some of the theories that underlie it and the different tools that are used. Um, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, the IHI, which some of you may have heard of, uh, defines this science as um, something that will improve quality, safety, and value in healthcare. And some of the ways that they do that are by utilizing innovation, by doing rapid cycle testing in your area of interest, in your field directly, and then by learning about change and spreading that change to other areas where it might be applicable. One of the most commonly used models for this type of work is the model for improvement, and you can see a little graphical schematic of that on the right. And we're going to keep that as a constant as we talk about our project so that hopefully you can link it back to this framework. So this starts by asking three questions. The first is, what are you trying to accomplish? It's really, really important to have an aim before you start working on anything. The second is, how are we going to know that change is an improvement? So this is where you focus on your measures so that you can really understand what you're doing. And then lastly, what change can we make that will result in sort of larger scale improvements? And this is all done through PDSA cycles. Hopefully most of you have heard of those, Plan, Do, Study, Act. So we're going to go to our first objective here, SMART AIM. So for those of you who are sort of keeping tabs, we're trying to meet our objectives here. So this is an acronym, and many of you have probably heard it. I know, for example, all the learners in the audience have probably heard it because I know our residency directors uh, try to make even learning objectives through the training uh, process SMART because it actually helps you achieve better outcomes. So the S stands for specific. So that's pretty self-explanatory. You want to actually clearly state what you're trying to do. M stands for measurable, so you will see that a lot of these aims are going to have numeric goals uh, built into them. The A stands for actionable, so this has to be something you can actually do, something that you have some influence over, some control over. It doesn't make sense for me to try to aim to do something that I'm never going to be able to fix because I have no control over it. R is relevant, so it should be something that either the hospital or your division or some small group of people agree with you is important. 
And then lastly, it should be time bound. So you have to give a time frame to say, I'm going to do this by such and such a date. And if you're able to do all of these things, if you go back to that top right hand corner there, what you end up doing is answering your first question in the model for improvement is what are we trying to accomplish? I'm going to turn things over to Ilana to keep going with our little intro section here. Hi, everybody. So the, the next question that we want to answer is how do we know that the change is an improvement? And the way that we do this is by starting to do our tests. We make different interventions and see if that makes a difference. So the P in PDSA is plan. So you want to state what your question is and then make some predictions. If we do this, then this will happen. And you really want to um, figure out who's going to do the test, where it's going to happen, what's going to happen exactly, and when. So do a little planning. Um, and then finally, you want to do, do your plan, which is carry out your plan, and make sure you're documenting all your observations. You're getting your metrics data, but you're also asking everybody who's involved in that test what happened, what worked, what didn't work. Then you want to study, which just means you're going to take a look at all the data that you've gathered and try and think about what that might mean. And then you want to summarize what you've learned from that test. And then finally, you want to act. And um, these, the, the adapt, abandon, or adopt is something that we learned at Cincinnati. And I, I just like it. It's really catchy. You can remember that. So did your intervention work super, super well that you want to adopt it and try it on a larger scale? Um, did some parts work well and some parts didn't work well? You might think about adapting what you have done. Or finally, did it just um, go terribly, horribly wrong and you think, none of this is going to work. I'm going to abandon this and move on to something else. I think the biggest point to make here with PDSA is you have to think small at first, and sometimes that's really hard to do. You might have this awesome idea that you think is going to change everything and everything that we do, and you say, okay, everybody in the emergency department is going to do this now, or everybody on the floors is going to do this. And that's not really a great way to do it. You want to start small and then work your way to more uh, to larger scale. So this is a nice schematic of what's called a ramp, a PDSA ramp. So a ramp are multiple PDSAs in a row that have to do with the same theme. Um, so you might have an idea that might work. You might try it on one patient or one small area of the hospital. And after going through several cycles of maybe adapting that, that intervention, then you might start thinking about scaling it up to more patients or a larger area of the hospital. So this is a really important concept. I think. Um, it's funny when you, when you think, really, we're just going to try this on one patient, but it really does make a difference and you can learn a lot from re really small tests of change. And then finally, we want to talk about what change can we make that will result in improvement. So you've done all these interventions, you've studied your results of those PDSAs and those ramps, but now you have to go back and say, okay, we did all these different ramps, we did all these different things, which changes actually resulted in improvement? And in order to do that, you have to follow data over time. And this is really, really important. Um, I'm just going to orient everybody for a second. This is a run chart. There's a lot of different um, tools and graphs that you can use to get this kind of data. And it depends what you're studying, which sort of modality you might choose. But this is a, this is a run chart. So on the x-axis, you have time. So in this particular example, those um, hash marks are for weeks. And then on the y-axis is whatever metric you're trying to improve. So for this particular example, it's the percent discharged within four hours of meeting discharge goals. And, and you're following, that's the metric. That's the, they're trying to reach a goal. So that green line on top is the goal. 
and um, the red line is the, the median, and all those little dots are for that week, the percentage of patients who met that goal. And you can see that there are those yellow boxes that have words in them. It doesn't matter what they say, but the point is those are some of the interventions that the team performed. And you can see that with each, each intervention, there's an improvement toward, toward the goal. And you might see, you know, when you're testing out in the field that you have an intervention and it made absolutely no change in your data. So this is really important to help you distinguish what helps and, and what doesn't. So now we're going to go into the examples of our projects. And there are going to be some slides that we're going to show you that have lots of busy stuff on it. But we're going to try and cue you into more of the methodology than some of the content here. But we hope that our projects are interesting to you enough that you'll listen. Um, so, so the project that I worked on is the evaluation of a clinical pathway for the management of febrile infants ages 29 to 60 days old. And we, we did this in the emergency department. Um, you don't need to read. I, I wish I had time to read everybody, but it takes a whole team to do this sort of work, and it's really important that you identify members of your team who are excite, as excited as you are to work on a project like this. So the background for my project is that fever is one of the most common reasons that infants present to the emergency department. And, and although most of the infections end up being viral, the rate of serious bacterial infection in this age group is higher than in the general population. There is huge variability in care provided in this age group nationally and also at our institutions. So you know everybody knows that for the neonates, for the ages 28 and under, that you get a lumbar puncture, blood, and urine. Um, and there's tons of variability in how these patients are managed once they get out of that neonatal age range. And this is, um, there have been a bunch of papers about it, mostly in the emergency medicine literature, uh, that there's huge variation in care, not just here, but all over and, and in Canada too. And in the past, we have always used these three algorithms that everybody's heard of, the Rochester, the Philadelphia, the Boston <coughs> criteria to determine what we do for these kids. But there's a lot of newer evidence in the last five years or so that supports some changes in what we had been doing for so many years. So first, there were some great papers out of Utah that show that clinical pathways for the treatment of this chief complaint actually helps to decrease variation in care, and that we probably shouldn't be performing all these lumbar punctures on well-appearing infants who are low risk. And then finally, there's tons of time to positivity of culture studies that are excluding the PICU patients, the patients with hardware, that now support that we can send these kids home earlier and discontinue antibiotics sooner than we have been. So just to go back to what Natalie was talking about to answer that first question, what exactly are we trying to do? This is the smart aim for my project, um, which is to increase the percentage of febrile infants ages 29 to 60 days old managed according to the clinical pathway for fever and sepsis evaluation from 60%, which was our baseline, from our baseline data, to 90% by the end of May. Um, we actually bumped that up to 100%. I should have changed that on the slide because we were doing so, so well. But the way we determined whether or not the pathway was adhered to was if um, recommendations in the pathway for whether or not to do a lumbar puncture, whether or not to give antibiotics, and whether or not to admit the patient to the hospital were fo followed. But then you want to step back and say, well, what's my global aim? What are we really trying to do here? And our global aim, and oftentimes you start with a global aim and then, and then you do your SMART aim. But the global aim is to decrease unnecessary testing, which in this case is lumbar punctures, which are very invasive tests, to decrease unnecessary antibiotic use and the rate of hospitalization for these well-appearing febrile infants with low-risk test results. 
I'm going to blow through this really quick. I think um, the people who work here, you guys have seen clinical pathways before, but this is the clinical pathway for a femur and sepsis evaluation. It's just <coughs> all of our clinical pathways have an algorithm that walk um, providers through how we feel evidence shows us we should manage this particular illness. So for here, we first divide the patient into are they well or are they ill, either by, by appearance or some of the history that, that you gather. And then if they are well, you only get blood and urine, and then you wait for those results to come back. If the results are high-risk lab results, you go over to the ill infant box. And then if it's an ill infant or have high-risk high lab results, then they get sort of the full court press, they get antibiotics, they get admitted. Um, this, please don't sit and read everything on here. We just wanted to give you an example of, of one of the other tools that we learned about that can be really helpful. So, so now you know what you're, you have your, you'll have your smart aim, you have some baseline data, and now what do you do? You have to figure out all the different interventions that might help you get to your goal. And one way to do that is by creating a key driver diagram. And the key drivers are things that you think really need to happen in order to reach your goal. And then you think of interventions that might help achieve those key drivers. So that's essentially all that this is. So you take your baseline data, you start brainstorming about what the process that happens around your goal is, and then you figure out your interventions. And so then what do you do? Now we have to go to the how will we know the changes and improvement part of it, and you have to start testing. So I'm going to show you a series of run charts uh, with actual data from the project that I was doing. Um, I, I just really want to point out here, I'm a, I'm a hospitalist, not an emergency medicine doctor, and so there was such good collaboration between all of us providers in order to make this happen. It was just great. Um, so just to orient everybody, on the x-axis again is time, and so here I have monthly data, and on the y-axis are the percentage of patients who, who were managed according to the pathway. I'm going to point out that there's that clinical pathway go live that's not until July 2016 so a lot of what you see on my run chart is actually baseline data but we felt like it was really important to put that up there because in the process of writing this clinical pathway um, Dr. Hoppe from the emergency department and I and, and Kate Kazmieri one of the fellows we did tons and tons of education journal clubs with our um, respective groups to sort of hone in on what we wanted the pathway to look like. And some of that actually made a really big difference, so we thought it was important to, to add over there. And you can see that we've had a median shift, so that's that dotted green line um, over, over time with some of our interventions that we did, which focused on provider education and provider buy-in. Buy -in. We talked a lot about our order set, which I'll get to in a little bit. We revamped um, how you order ceftriaxone in the ED. We started some monthly um, ro uh, rotator, resident rotator education, and these were some of the ramps that we did. We actually have been hitting 100%, and so far for the month of May, we are at 100% still for pathway adherence. So you always want to look at, you know, why aren't we at our goal? And so for me, what we wanted to do was take apart, take apart those components that allowed somebody to be adherent to the pathway. And I kind of flipped these because I want, we really, our, our global aim, right, was to decrease the amount of antibiotics and these interventions for the low-risk patients, and we want those not to happen. So in this run chart, um, this is a run chart for the monthly percentage of infants at low risk for serious bacterial infection who received antibiotics. Because like I mentioned before, we don't, we don't want them to get antibiotics. And we've done phenomenally well here. So you can see that with our um, 
some of the educational interventions and the clinical pathway, we, we are really, we, for the past several months, we have not given antibiotics to these low-risk patients. And I think that's a feat in the day of antimicrobial stewardship. This is a really big deal. We're sending a really powerful message, I think, even to the families that we, we don't think, we know your baby has a fever, but this is viral and you don't need antibiotics. And then, and then we're not in, um, having these patients come into the hospital, get IVs, parents miss work. There's so many things that go, that go with that. And then um, this is our graph, our run chart for the lumbar punctures. And I, I loved this one because it's, it's almost, it's a little funny to me. So you can see two median shifts here for, for our lumbar punctures. So again, we don't want to be doing lumbar punctures for these low-risk infants because we know from literature it's not necessary. <coughs> and um, we did a lot of talking, like I mentioned, with our groups, and that actually worked. That's where our first median shift was, just doing education and going over the literature. But there were still some sporadic LPs, but as soon as the pathway went live, we didn't really even need to do other interventions. As soon as the pathway went live, those LPs stopped happening. So, so that was a wonderful thing. So, you know, we're ha we have great results here. We're doing great. And, and now what? So we reached our goal. So now we have to try and sustain this momentum that we've had. And um, so we have a plan. So first, we, we had been following monthly, I mean, excuse me, we had been following our metrics every week, going through charts and troubleshooting if things didn't go as we thought that they should. And now we are ready to transition to monthly data reporting because we're doing so well. We're still working with our EPIC people on auto reminders to RNs and providers. We are told that come November with our upgrade, based on chief complaint, we can have suggested order sets and things like that to pop up for providers just to remind them that there is this pathway. We have an order set. It's not being used really in the ED for a variety of reasons that really make sense, but we're um, almost done. It's almost live, the new order set that will take people through the clinical decision-making pathway. And, and then finally, this, and this last one I'm really excited by because we follow metrics for all of our clinical, I'm the clinical pathway person for our institution, and we, we follow metrics for all of our clinical pathways, but um, we're working on a way to sort of revamp how we share those results with the actual users of the clinical pathways. So we're trying to come up with some sort of report that providers get either weekly or monthly to, to really see how they're doing and to build momentum. So we're really excited by that. And then some new directions. So where do we go now? This is when they were cute. I thought I'd put a picture <laughs> of when they were actually cute. So um, we are, so we attacked and have done great with the emergency department portion of that clinical pathway I showed you, but there's a whole inpatient leg, and I would really like to start working on improving that length of stay of those patients, because I mentioned that we can start, we can really be sending these patients home sooner than we are. I have length of stay data, and we keep these babies too long. So we're gonna start to work on that. And then finally, one of, so when you start collecting data, you sometimes uncover things you didn't even know um, were a problem, and we um, noticed that the doses of ceftriaxone being given for patients, even though sometimes they weren't even indicated, were just sort of all over the map. And when we went down and talked to providers, ton of providers down in the ED, the answer was pretty unanimous that we order ceftriaxone for so many different things, for fever neutropenia, for UTI, that it just got confusing what the doses should be. And we thought, well, that shouldn't be, because this is a problem not just for our fever patients, but for all these patients. And 
Um, after a lot of testing, we created a ceftriaxone order panel, which is now the only way to order IV ceftriaxone in the emergency department. And when you open up that order, it, it opens up a whole list of different diagnoses, appendicitis, community-acquired pneumonia, fever neutropenia, all these different things. And when you click on that diagnosis, it auto-populates the correct dose. And so right now, um, one of the heads of the antimicrobial stewardship program and I are sifting through a whole bunch of pre and post ceftriaxone panel go live data to see if we've made a difference in overall ceftriaxone ordering. And if it works really well, we will consider this, this type of order for more antibiotics and in more places in the hospital. So I'm gonna turn it over to, to Natalie again. Hi again. Uh, so my project was focused on reduction in chemotherapy <laughs> prescribing errors. Um, as Ilana has already alluded to, this type of work really takes a team. Usually a multidisciplinary team is very helpful. And these are just some of the people who touched different aspects of this work over the course of the last probably more like two years. I want to give a specific shout out, I don't even know if she's here, to Lee Hart, one of our nurses who really has done basically all of the work that I'm going to show you here in the next few slides. So I hope I don't have to spend a lot of time convincing you guys that chemotherapy errors are bad, but just to give you an example here, this is a paper that was published in the New York Times in March of 1995. And it describes a sentinel event that occurred at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. So really not, not a shabby place, right? Um, and in this particular instance, a 39-year-old female who happened to be a reporter for the Boston Globe and who was married to a scientist at Dana-Farber received four times the intended dose of cyclophosphamide and ended up dying from complications of that overdose. So even one event is a really big deal. Now, the nice um, news coming out of this is that they learned from their mistakes, and Dana-Farber now has one of the best cultures of safety in this country and has done a lot of work um, on quality and safety in their institution. This is a paper that was published a decade later in 2004 in the Boston Globe delineating the amazing improvements they've had. One of the things that they say at the bottom is that they had no medication errors that caused permanent injury to outpatients in 10 years. So you know there's some little qualifiers there. So clearly events still happen but they also had made huge improvements. Um, another reason I bring up this uh, event is that one of the uh, interventions that was instituted by this group was one of the first computerized order entry systems for chemotherapy. Now I bring that up for a couple of reasons. One is that we have undertaken a similar venture here at Connecticut Children's in uh, the course of the last year and I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. And that secondly, humans make mistakes, right? So what you're going to notice over the course of all of our uh, presentations here is that a lot of quality improvement work, both in healthcare but also in other industries, in manufacturing and engineering, uh, is really revolving around creating a system to support the humans in that system and to automate whenever possible. So we really want to rely on our technology to help us here. So as I've already alluded to, the reason I think this project is important is that chemotherapy is error prone and high risk. That's for many reasons that you see listed there. We use a lot of drugs. Our drugs have a lot of terrible side effects. 
we have a lot of potential interactions. Um, we're really dealing with high stakes situations in terms of trying to cure people's cancer. Um, the other thing I hope that you will take my word on, because I don't want to bore you with the literature, is that there's a huge body of evidence to show that computerized order entry, and even more specifically, templated computerized order entry like we have been doing here, has been shown to significantly reduce prescribing errors. So here's my smart aim. I wanted to decrease the chemotherapy prescribing error rate in the pediatric oncology practice at Connecticut Children's Medical Center from 0.05 per patient per week to zero by May 1st, 2017. Now this is all part of my global aim, which is really to reduce the rate of all chemotherapy errors and eliminate any that might reach the patient. But I chose to focus on prescribing errors first for a couple reasons. The first, when you think about sort of your scope of practice, is that I am a prescriber. So it felt to me like the place where I had the greatest knowledge and also the potential for the greatest influence as I was starting out on this journey. The other thing is that as we implemented this computerized order entry system, I was a part of the build team, so had a lot of control of that part of the process. So just to give you guys some background here, even though we've been live with Epic in this institution since 2014 and also had some other forms of computerized systems prior to that, um, until October of last year, we were still writing chemotherapy orders on paper and documenting them on paper MARs, and that's because of all of the additional safety checks that are required for that type of prescribing. Um, so hopefully you can see that this does meet the criteria for a smart aim. I would say the one piece that might be a little bit of a stretch is the achievable. Trying to achieve zero is a little bit ambitious, but chemotherapy events are never events, so we thought it was unreasonable to aim for anything other than zero with this particular or piece of things. The other side note that I want to um, tell you guys so that you're not alarmed when I start showing you graphs of errors here is that we're tracking all near misses here. So almost none of these events actually reached a patient. So don't be scared that we're that uh, unsafe here. It's really important to look at near misses because you can learn a lot about your process and about places that have potential for error that might reach the patient. So um, those are very informative. So where do you start? And I think Ilana's touched on this a little bit. The first thing you have to do is you have to look at your data. So with rare and high impact events like chemotherapy errors, you have to investigate and determine the root cause for every single individual event that happens. But you have to actually look at your data sort of as an aggregate to have an idea of where you can have the most impact and what types of things you need to do. So this is called a Pareto chart. I don't want you to focus on the content here, but more about the the type of tool and what it's useful here. So what this allows you to do is to put your data into buckets and then it will organize it for you in order of decreasing frequency. So um, these are the types of prescribing errors that we made in our institution prior to go live with all of our new systems here between June and October of 2016. And what hopefully this will show you is it wouldn't make much sense for me to come up with interventions that were targeting items in the buckets on the right of that screen. Because even if we eliminated them, they wouldn't make an, much of an impact on our overall error rate. So what you want to do is see where the money is um, and start thinking about interventions um, that will target your more frequent uh, types of events. So in addition to the data, you also need to understand the process. Again, please don't read this at all. This is, I'm showing you just to think about some types of tools, for the, you guys to think about some tools that you might be able to use. So this is one way you can understand your process. This is a simplified version of an FMEA, which stands for Failure Mode Effects Analysis. Um, what you want to do is map out your process. So for me, the boxes in the black there show the steps that are required to prescribe chemotherapy here at Connecticut Children's. 
underneath it at the red, in the red, what you do is brainstorm everything that could possibly go wrong at each one of those steps. And then you do a further exercise on the top in the green and say, okay, what can I do to mitigate those, uh, those potential events there? And you start thinking about what you could do to prevent those types of issues. So basically what you're gonna do is combine your baseline data with a thought exercise about your process in order to think about what types of things you were gonna do. This is my key driver diagram. Ilana's already talked about this, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But again, your drivers are the things that if all of them go well, your process should go well. And anytime you do an intervention, it has to be linked to one of your key drivers. Otherwise, you're not, either your key drivers are wrong or you're doing an intervention that doesn't actually make sense. So just as an example here, if you look at my top key driver, because of the data, we knew that using templated order sets would improve our ability to write chemotherapy safely. And you can see that we have a couple interventions that were aimed at that particular driver. So once you've thought about it, you go and you start testing and you wanna do this quickly, as Ilana's already alluded to. Starting small, going big. So this is my data over time. This is a little bit different than what Ilana showed you as opposed to being a run chart, this is a control chart. Um, you still have time on your x-axis, and mine is measured in weeks. Um, on your y-axis, you still have your metrics, so mine's our chemo per, chemotherapy prescribing error rate per patient per week. The difference here is that I'm plotting means instead of medians, and that there's actually, see that hashed red, I wish I had a little pointer here, the, that hashed red line at the top, this type of chart actually imposes statistical control limits on your data and allows you to interpret them a little bit better. Um, so here you can see that on the left-hand side, where before there's any of those yellow boxes there, that's our baseline data. And what you can see is we had huge variability in our rate of chemotherapy errors. Um, the first box I have is when we went live with Beacon. That was an enormous project that several of us worked on for probably almost two years prior to go live. So there are many PDSA cycles encompassed in that one box, but it was would have been way too cluttered to try to delineate them all, and really when they started impacting the end user was when we went live with the system there. But you can see that that, um, that and then we had several um, subsequent changes to workflow that were related to the implementation of that system. And what I hope you can see is that we've had a couple shifts in our mean here, and the first occurred the second we went live with our system, which was awesome. And then we've tweaked things since then in order to get ourselves actually down to our goal of zero, which has been amazing, and I wasn't sure that we would do it. You can see we've had a couple breakthrough events there, and that is to be expected. Um, but none of them have been, they've been sort of statistical outliers such that they have not changed our mean error rate, which has been at zero for some time now, which is pretty awesome. I also wanted to show you guys another way to look at this data in case you're starting to think about how some of these tools might apply to you. This is called a days between chart, and it's exactly what it sounds like. You plot your events and it tells you how long you go between your events. So I didn't annotate like crazy on this so that it wouldn't look cluttered, but what I hope you can see is that prior to implementing any changes in our chemotherapy ordering process, we were lucky if we went two weeks without making a prescribing error. And since going live with our new system, we have steadily been improving our days between events, initially getting up to about a month or so, and now we've had a couple runs um, a couple runs of two months between errors. So this feels good, right? This is awesome. When I look at go back to my smart aim, I actually achieved my goal. You're supposed to say, yay, yay, celebrate, and that's true. But what I really want to highlight with my work here is that this is a continuous process. You can't stop looking at it and you can't stop thinking about these things. Because if I stopped here, I would be missing something. 
So I circle back to my global aim. Remember what I really want to do? I don't want to hurt the patients, right? So even if I or one of my colleagues writes the perfect chemotherapy order, pharmacy could still prepare it wrong. Nursing could still administer it wrong. We could fail to monitor the patient appropriately, and there could be events. So this is a control chart with our overall chemotherapy error rate at CCMC. And what you can see is that despite all of our improvement in prescribing errors, I have made no impact on our overall chemotherapy error rate here at Connecticut Children's. So initially that feels a little disheartening, but what you really need to do is ask the question why and figure out what's going on. So I went back to the Pareto chart, which I actually find to be a very helpful tool. Um, again, don't focus a lot on the details here, but on the left, these were the types of errors. I said, what were we doing before Beacon? What types of errors were we making? And what you can see here is nearly 70% of our errors prior to going live with this electronic system were prescribing errors. The, this is about five months' worth of data. On the right-hand side, you see the six months' worth of data. This is all combined, so it's not sort of overtime. It's all of it in aggregate. Is what type of errors are we making now, now that we've changed things? And what you can see is that prescribing errors have now fallen to the third most frequent. They are only about 15% of the errors that we make. And I, I can tell you that if I calculated the data for the last two or three months, they'd be even lower on that frequency chart. Um, and they, there's a couple areas of interest. So I had this sort of catch-all other category for things that didn't really make sense and I couldn't put into any of the main categories that had been described in the literature. And now, all of a sudden, my other category is my top type of errors. So we had to dig into that a little bit. And what I can tell you is that we're now making a type of error that it was not possible for us to have made in the prior system. Um, for those of you who are curious, it's that now that our nurses are charting electronically um, and documenting chemotherapy on the MAR, there are ways in which they have been accidentally deleting and accidentally duplicating orders, which has led to issues. Now, these have not reached the patient. We've been able to catch all of them. But this is uh, sort of a nuance of an electronic system that was not the type of error we could ma uh, make before. I think some of this is growing pains and just getting used to the new system. But we're going to have to look at this more closely, and we already have. Um, and then the second is that you will see that our administration errors, which um, uh, look to be about I don't know, 11 or 12 percent of our in the first graph have now really, you know, nearly tripled in frequency. I've already done a little bit of digging with this, and one of the interesting pieces of feedback that so far I've gotten from almost everyone I've talked to is that they don't actually think we're making more administration errors, but that now with an electronic system, it's much easier for us to find them. But we're going to have to look into that to, to see. So for next steps for me, the first one, as Ilana has already alluded to, is you have to sustain improvements that we've made. So we are going to also switch to monthly data, probably looking at counts rather than rates. Uh, but we can't forget about the prescribing piece of things. But we do need to shift focus to the other type of errors that we seem to be making in higher proportion at this point in time. And that's going to involve this entire process again. So we need new smart aims. We need new key driver diagrams. And then we'll start making small <laughs> interventions and testing them. And then the last piece is that I think because of the awesome culture of quality and safety that Dr. Bennon has brought to this institution, we're really initiating a lot of new quality improvement um, projects in a lot of the different parts of the hospital, but also in Hemonk. Uh, as an example of one of the other things we've already started working on is we have a great multidisciplinary team interested in improving the pain management of our sickle cell population. We have residents involved, the emergency departments involved, the pain teams involved. You can see that there's a lot of different interested stakeholders there. Um, so it'll be a nice multidisciplinary project that we have already embarked on. Well, that's all I got.
turn it over to Brendan. <coughs> All right, for the last uh, six or seven minutes, we're just going to take a brief journey through surgical quality, focusing specifically on appendicitis. Uh, which has been the focus of my work through the uh, I2S2 course. I'm going to talk a little bit about NISQIP because we've been interested in appendicitis for a long time uh, in pediatric surgery, focusing mostly on appendicitis, but we've also done some great work reducing blood transfusions with spine surgery. I'll talk a little bit about evidence-based care for appendicitis, and then I'll go through what uh, we worked on for my project. So. Through NISQIP, uh, we've been able to develop risk-adjusted models uh, for hospital, which differentiate hospital performance, uh, which has been really helpful for us. Mortality doesn't help us with appendicitis, but high morbidity operations, which uh, appendectomy for appendicitis is, is truly where the opportunity for quality improvement lies. So don't pay much attention to this, but what NISQIP gives us is a way to break down all the complications that we have on our surgical patients. And it also allows us to look at specialty specific data and see how we compare to hospitals across the country. And what I'm gonna talk about is the, the sort of what has really helped us here at Connecticut Children's is the implementation of pathways, which has standardized our care. And we're trying to do more and more of this uh, in uh, surgery. Uh, and NISQIP has really been the cornerstone of our, of our initiatives because it allows us to benchmark ourselves against other uh, hospitals. So a couple of things we learned about from focusing on appendicitis is that uh, there's no correlation between the resources that we put into caring for these patients and outcomes. And that's really extraordinary. So you can dump all the resources in the world into caring for these patients, but your outcomes don't improve. And that's a really important thing to think about if you're trying to improve the quality of care for these patients. So we should be trying to minimize the uh, patients that are getting central lines and TPNs, and we should really almost be abandoning using TPN for these patients. And as far as the pathway goes, if we decrease variation in care between providers, we can really improve the quality of care we provise, provide. And by standardizing care, uh, we can, we've actually demonstrated that our outcomes do not change. So just a little bit about benchmarking and then I'll launch into my project. We can look at some really interesting things with appendicitis. This is simply case duration. And you can see that we're kind of middle of the road as far as how long it takes us to do this operation. Some of that probably relates to the fact that we're teaching uh, residents how to do this operation uh, uh, in many of the cases that we perform. This is something that we should all be very proud of here. Uh, this basically shows, this is Connecticut Children's Hospital 3175 here, and this shows that among all the other hospitals, each represented by a dot on this chart, we're performing fewer CT scans and taking out fewer normal appendices. So this is something that we do uh, very well uh, here. Here's something that we do very poorly here. We're not very good stewards of antibiotics at Connecticut Children's. Uh, we're up here, we're giving our, our patients with complicated appendicitis too many doses of, uh, of antibiotics postoperatively and for too long uh, a period of time. So, pathway is important because it allows us to standardize our care. This is some preliminary data from the beginning of 2016, and what you can see 
is that we're uh, on average about 30 to 40 percent of patients were or 30 to 60 percent of patients were actually getting uh, put on the pathway uh, and if you use six sigma criteria we're actually operating in a state of chaos uh, which is really extraordinary but uh, but true when we look at the baseline data so uh, this is a great uh, Charles Darwin quote, it's not the strongest of the species that survive, nor the most intelligent, but the one most responsive to change. So we have to change our behavior. And clinical pathways are important for a lot of things, but uh, this uh, came out of the seminars of pediatric surgery. So the goal is to standardize care, improve outcomes, and reduce resource utilization in carrying out your treatment plan. So basic definition. So this is our pathway for appendicitis, which you really don't need to pay any attention to, but it basically splits patients into two arms, patients with simple appendicitis, <coughs> patients with complicated appendicitis. And it really focuses on simplifying the process as much as possible because the simpler it is, the more straightforward it is, the easier it is for the house staff to carry out the plan, uh, to put in the orders and for the nurses to carry out the care plan. So just a couple of elements of the best evidence that we have incorporated into the pathway. We know from a, a bunch of different papers that mono or dual therapy for appendicitis uh, patients do just as well as with the standard therapies. We know from a randomized control trial that irrigation doesn't improve uh, outcomes for these patients. And then simple things like putting patients on Miralax, which treats constipation post-op, will actually re reduce uh, the incidence of post-operative uh, imaging and, and readmissions to the hospital. So uh, this is a, a, a run chart for uh, the, uh, the, the implementation of um, different PDSAs to increase pathway utilization. And what it basically showed is that from uh, a rate of about 60% of patients in the beginning part of the year, after we implemented these things, we have over 80% of the patients on the surgical service are now being cared for on the pathway. So um, we're, we're doing a much better job uh, of this. Uh, looking more specifically at which patients receive antibiotics according to the protocol, we're actually doing a pretty good job with that, although there is still some room for improvement. So challenges uh, uh, and next steps, uh, we still have some challenges with uh, civil disobedience. <laughs> we're trying to get um, all of, and, and we're not just picking on Dr. Bork, who, 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 who has some issues with the protocol. We've all sometimes have lapses where we think that something is, uh, you know, there's a better way of doing it. Um, but uh, by standardizing the care, we can actually find out what things we can do to improve it. And if we all standardize how we do it, we can actually find out um, if we truly are doing uh, better. And what we've noticed with the improved uh, utilization of the pathway are outcomes in terms of readmission, post-operative uh, uh, abscess drainage have all stayed the same. So with standardization, we're still doing uh, doing, uh, doing well in terms of clinically important outcomes. We're in the process of trying to implement more uh, pathways um, in, the, the, um, in surgical services in, in both trauma as well as things like ovarian torsion, pyloric stenosis, which are things that we commonly see. We're trying to implement uh, bundles for spine cases and colorectal cases and something that we're modeling after the adult uh, world is ERAS or early recovery after surgery uh, is another uh, thing that we're working on with our anesthesia colleagues. 
So I'm going to conclude with this slide of the Lower Brooks River. So if any of you are interested in quality improvement and are fishing around for uh, quality improvement projects like these brown bears on the Lower Brooks River, River please reach out uh, to Natalie, Alana, or I. We're more than happy to uh, help you get started. There are many, many opportunities to uh, get involved in these projects, and we'd be happy to help you uh, with it. <clears throat> so with that, uh, we'll conclude, and we'd be happy to answer any questions.